morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are working our way through the famous last words of God spoken in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Now, these last words summarize much of what God has already said in the previous 65 books of the Bible. And in this book of Revelation, we are given 10 of the most important topics that all of us must eventually face. And these 10 are not offered just as a to-do list or a set of rules for us to keep, but rather a, a series of visions or poetic paintings for us to see. Now, the reason they're presented to us as a visual rather than just a list is because we, we tend to make our decisions and build our lives out of the way we see reality, not what we're told to do. And so Revelation presents us with these 10 poetic paintings of the way things really are right now from God's perspective and how they will be in the end. And if we will allow our imaginations to be stretched and corrected by these 10 images, well, then we'll be prepared both for the real world that we are in now as well as the real future that we will all face. Now, these 10 paintings are not presented for our consideration just kind of in random order, like on a wall in a museum. No, that each one is connected to the next one and then adds clarity uh, to the ones that follow. So the first painting, the first image that we are shown is that of Christ at the very center of history, and us as his followers, first of all, on our knees before him in surrender, and then on our feet to follow him. The second painting is the image of the church. Ordinary places like this, full of ordinary, flawed people like us, that turn out to be the lampstands on which God projects his light into the world. The third painting we looked at is the vision of what worship looks like from God's perspective. To us, just the casual observer, this, this doesn't look that impressive. I mean, it's good, but it's not that impressive. But it turns out that worship is the serious business of heaven. And it is the activity here on earth that can center our daily lives around the throne of God. Now, at this point, after this third painting, we, we have our feet firmly anchored on solid ground, the solid ground of who really is running the universe. And so now, at this point, we are finally ready to see the vision of the question that is the top question on most minds, and that is the question of evil. This is what we looked at last week. The question is this, if God is so good and so powerful, then why is there so much evil around us? Now, from our perspective, it looks like evil is winning and that God is either too weak or unconcerned to do anything about it. But from the perspective of heaven that we looked at last week, we see Jesus Christ seated on a white horse, the choice of generals waging war against the forces of evil that are behind every unmet need, every war, every conflict, every disease, and every death throughout all of history. And it turns out that God is not on the sidelines hoping for the best against evil, but he, he, rather he's engaged in a long-term strategy to destroy evil without destroying us. You see, evil is not just out there in the world. It's also in us. And that requires a very precise and very surgical strike to extract evil without destroying the host, us. Only Jesus Christ can do that, the rider on a white horse. But next on the, the battlefield painting of, of evil are the prayers of those like us who follow Christ. Now that is a surprising weapon. That's not the weapon really any of us were expecting. Because for us, I mean, that's be honest, prayer tends to be one of the last weapons in our arsenal as we face the struggles of life. We tend to pray only after all of our efforts have failed, only after we've tried everything else. 
after we've come to the end of our ability and our words and our efforts, well, we decide, well, we better pray now. Nothing else we've done is working, so let's try prayer. And so we, we tend to pull out prayer kind of like a weapon, and we point it at whatever the evil is that we're facing, and we pull the trigger, and nothing happens. But that is not how it looks from the perspective of heaven when we pray. When we pray, in this great painting, we see another painting kind of offset from the painting of evil. The painting of evil begins this painting, but this is a separate painting. And we see three things happen whenever we pray. The first thing we see is the fact that prayer surrounds evil. This is the first thing that happens when we pray. It it surrounds evil. Now, the great battlefield painting against evil that we looked at last week is marked by seven seals. The first seal is Christ on a white horse. The next three seals are the three horses that represent the impact of evil on human history. There's the red horse of war and conflict. Then there's the black horse of famine and unmet needs. And then there's the pale horse of disease and death. And those three horses mark kind of the three themes of evil that has raked through our planet throughout all of history. And then after the three horses of evil, we we see in seal number five the death toll that evil takes on all those who decide to stand up and speak the truth of God's word. Then in seal number six, we see the effect that evil has had on creation in the form of natural disasters. And now we're ready for seal number seven. And here's what we read in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So seal number one is Christ on a white horse. Now seal number seven, the last one, is the prayers of all the saints, those who follow Jesus Christ. So in this great painting of evil, the first and the last images are not evil. They bracket and surround and frame all that is evil. The five seals in the middle are contained by these two seals, one at the beginning and one at the end, that surround it. Now, if you and I were trying to imagine how God planned to contain evil in this world, we would never have come up with these two. I mean, one horseman against three, that's, well, that's bad odds from the beginning. But of course, when you look at the image we looked at last week, the image of Christ on a white horse, it is pretty imposing, and you begin to have a sense that this rider on the white horse might be able to take the other three. Now, of course, that's not how Christ ever looked when he was here on earth. I mean, if you were there in Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' moment of greatest popularity, you would see him ride into the city of Jerusalem to the throngs of people shouting Hosanna, but he was riding on a donkey, not a white horse. You would have never thought that this, this is God's answer to all of the evil in the world and that this man was days away from destroying evil. It didn't look like that. And it's kind of the same thing when we look at the seal of prayer. The other side of the bracket that contains evil in this world. Prayer just doesn't look that powerful. I mean, when has prayer ever stopped a war or ended the advance of death or filled a stomach? I mean, even those of us who have firsthand experience with the power of answered prayer, we tend to find 
it difficult to see prayer elevated to this level as one of the two sides of God's great move to restrain and eventually defeat evil. And the reason is because, well, like Jesus on a donkey, prayer just doesn't look like much from the view of this world. But when you see what prayer looks like from the perspective of heaven, it begins to make sense why this is the other side of God's great plan to take on evil. We read on in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. This description, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now again, these are poetic paintings, so let's open up our imaginations and and try to get a glimpse of what this painting looks like. It begins with our prayers. We pray. And then an angel steps forward and mixes our prayers together with incense, and then puts both our prayers and the incense together in a golden censer. Here's what a golden censer looks like. Now, the purpose of incense in the Old Testament was to purify whatever was offered to God. And the reason this is important when it comes to prayer is because none of our prayers are perfectly crafted or free from sinful motives or selfish motives. None of us are perfect prayers. Every prayer, you kind of end with thinking, I don't, maybe I could have said it better, or maybe I, maybe I should say more, or maybe I should have said less. We struggle to know exactly what to pray. But that's okay because perfection is not required. Whatever we say in prayer is, is mixed together with incense and that symbolizes that God, he purifies it. He cleans it up. Then, after that, the angel took this censer, filled with our prayers and the incense to purify it, and filled it with fire from heaven. A fire from the altar of God represents the Holy Spirit. Just weeks after Jesus ascended back into heaven, the Holy Spirit arrived in power, and the, the indication was fire. It represents the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, we see the role that the Holy Spirit uh, plays in helping us pray. Here's what it says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. Isn't that true? We, I don't know what to pray about this exactly. Was that okay or was that not okay? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So our prayers mixed together with incense then the fire of the Holy Spirit, then the angel takes that censer and hurls it down onto the earth. So what was sent up to heaven as a less than perfect prayer is first purified and then amplified by God's Spirit and then sent back to earth to do its work. But the way it returns to earth is very different than the way it left. It left as feeble, imperfect incomplete words from us, and it comes back, what? Then came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, where do thunder and lightning originate? Here on the ground or in the sky? Well, in, in the sky, above. You know, high and low pressure systems that we can't see with charged particles that we can't see, they collide. They collide in the upper atmosphere, and well, that causes lightning, that, boy, we can't miss. And it 
sends the booming sound of thunder that we can't ignore. We got to experience this a little over a week ago, which is pretty rare for us in this area. If you were here on Friday night, you saw the lightning and you heard the thunder. It interrupted whatever you were doing. One author, having read this, refers to prayer as reversed thunder. I love that statement. Because thunder normally comes from heaven and hits the earth. This starts on the earth, goes to heaven and comes back as thunder and lightning and earthquakes. It doesn't seem like that to us, but it reverses the order. The thunder starts here. It starts with us and our words. So we're sitting in our homes and we're maybe quietly praying. And then we get up wondering if anything happened. Not realizing that we have just called thunder and lightning to fall from heaven and go and do earthquake-level work in the middle of the evil that we find ourselves in. You see, in the Bible, evil is not so much explained. It is surrounded. It is responded to. Evil is never minimized in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is a very detailed listing of the evil in this world and in the human heart. There's no whitewashing the problem in you and in me and in the history of our world. And the answer that God gives to evil is that he has it surrounded, bracketed on one side by the work of Jesus Christ and on the other side by the prayers of his people. Really? Prayer is that powerful? Your prayer and my prayer is, is the other side of this bracket? This is part two of God's great plan to contain and eventually destroy evil is when Jesus does his work and you and I say our words to him. I don't know about you, but this painting has sure motivated me to want to pray more. So don't look at Jesus riding on a donkey or an individual Christian praying and think, there's no power there. There's nothing going on there. No. From the perspective of heaven, when it comes to respond to evil, that's number one and number two. Most powerful response. The work of Jesus and the prayers of his followers. The second thing that prayer does is it orients us. First, it surrounds evil and then it, then it orients us. And this is very important because whenever evil strikes us, it comes in many different forms and it comes with a varying intensity, but it always disorients us. It always, always sends us spinning and confused and with emotions swirling. We are stunned maybe in disbelief over what was said or what was done. Maybe we are blinded in anger at the one who said or did it. Maybe we get lost in the discouragement of what was said or what was done, maybe what we said or what we did. But we are almost in the face of evil, we are almost never clear-headed and calm-hearted. We're always spinning. Well, first-century Christians who heard these words of revelation had to be disoriented by all of the evil that they were facing. I mean, some of them had heard Jesus with their own ears, and they'd heard he promised a new kingdom. And now that Jesus has left in response to the kingdom of Rome seemed to only be gaining in power. Rome was making it very clear to them who was really in charge. It didn't look like Jesus. Massive engines of persecution 
were aligned and advancing against them. They had no weapons. They had no votes. They had little money, and they had no prestige. So why didn't they just give up? How, how is it possible that they endured and became the powerful force of history that Christianity became? How did that happen? Well, they prayed. Really? Is, is that all they did? No, that's not all they did. But as you read through the New Testament, they did a lot. They're instructed to pray. They gather to pray. They pray by themselves. They pray and they pray and they pray. And that prayer allowed them to outlast Rome with all of its might and power. In fact, this entire book of Revelation occurred because of a prayer. It was while John, the pastor of seven small churches, was praying on the Lord's Day that Jesus, it was then that Jesus showed him the visions contained in this book of Revelation. John was praying, and Jesus responded by giving him these paintings and saying, I want you to write this down, and I want you to send it in a letter to the churches. So in the beginning of Revelation, we find John in two conditions. He was, first of all, he was on the prison island of Patmos. But the second condition on that day is he was in the Spirit. He was praying. So on this island, John was isolated from those he loved, and he was a victim of the powers that be, the power of Rome. And this is really always what evil does. It isolates us, and it turns us into victims of its power. You know, the red horse of war brings death, separating loved ones from each other. It almost always leaves refugees in its wake who are separated from their homes and their communities, isolated. Add to that all of the separating that occurs when two people go to war with each other in a less formal way, but very real way. The black horse of famine and the fear of whether we're going to have enough to meet our needs, at least at this time in our economy, it tends to drive us in fear to maybe put a little bit too much emphasis on our work and a little less emphasis on our families. Therefore, isolating us more than we should be isolated. And of course, the pale horse of disease and death, well, it first confines us to a bed and eventually separates us from the ones that we love, leaving them alone. Evil always puts us on an island. It always isolates. It always leaves us alone. So what are we to do amid the wreckage of evil and the isolation it calls? Well, if John is going to be an example for us, if the early Christians and the New Testament are to be an example for us, we are to pray. Not because that will remove all of the evil and take us off whatever island of isolation we find ourselves on, but because in prayer we are suddenly in the presence of the one who will never leave us and who will never forsake us. So it was on the island of Patmos that Rome showed John who was in charge. But it was in prayer, talking with the Spirit of God, that God showed John who was really in charge. So it's interesting. At the same moment that John was on Patmos, in prison, he was in the Spirit. He was praying. 
in the face of an evil that he could do little about, that we can do little about, we can be talking to the one who can do anything. Evil will always disorient us. It will always send us spinning. But prayer stops the spinning, focuses us back on the throne, and puts things back in their place and reality back in focus. So we pray. The third thing that prayer does is prayer engages God. It engages God. Now, it's not that God is completely disengaged before we pray. He's not just sitting on the sidelines waiting for the call from us to get into the battle and do something. No, in the, the great painting of evil, Jesus is already on the right white horse and in the battle before the seventh seal is even mentioned. So, so why then should we pray? If God's already engaged, if he's already in the center, what can a few words from me or from you do in this great battle? And this honestly is why a lot of people don't pray. They're, well, God's already doing his thing. I, I, don't, I don't know how my prayers are going to change anything. And then in typical revelation form, we are not told why we should pray. We are shown visually why we should pray. In this vision that we are shown, we get to see how God responds when we pray. So we already read this, but let me read it again. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So the first brush stroke on this poetic painting of prayer is the silence of heaven. Now, I want, I want us again to let this fact soak into our collective imaginations. Given what we've seen so far, heaven is not a quiet place, dominated by the occasional angel on a cloud strumming a harp. I don't know where that image comes from, but it doesn't come from the Bible. As we've already read in worship, heaven is a place of music sung in loud voices by more creatures and celestial beings than can be numbered that are surrounding the throne of God. So it would be quite a, an amazing undertaking to get heaven to be silent at all, let alone for 30 full minutes. Well, what, what thing of great importance could ever bring about such a stop to all the activity and all the noise of heaven? Wait, shh. Someone's praying. Well, who? Well, it's just you. It's just me. And it's God saying, shh, shh. It's God listening. Now, don't put on your analytical hat and try to do the math on this. This is a poem. And the reason I tell you that, because that's, that was my first thought, was how, how, can that, how does that pencil out? How could heaven pause for 30 minutes to hear every single prayer by every single Christian? There would never be any singing done. There would always be silence. But again, I had to remind, this is poetry. This is not engineering schematics. This is poetry. And this poetic painting is making an amazing point. The point is this. Prayers are not just background noise in the clamor of heaven. God listens. Before the seal is opened, and the prayers of the saints are offered, all of heaven goes quiet, anticipating the arrival of these prayers. Now, it's, it's rare to find anyone who listens, isn't it? 
those of us that are married, we know it's a challenge just, just to stop and not just think we know what our spouse is going to say, but to listen and to ask follow-up questions and to, to really engage. In this busy, noisy world that we live in, almost nobody listens anymore. Oh, we hear and respond, but we, we don't really allow the silence that is necessary for real listening to occur. But God listens. In fact, our world is so noisy, it, it's a challenge for us to just make the time to even talk to God in prayer. But when we do, God hears everything we say. Every sigh, every groan, every stammer, every half-completed sentence, every word. And then what happens? Well, as far as we can tell, nothing. Heaven is still silent. I mean, it, this has been my experience. I know it's been your experience. You pray, you say amen. Well, I guess I'll get on with my day now because nothing happens. Everything is still silent. And this is important to understand. You see, the 30 minutes of silence in heaven not only represents the God who listens, it also represents the God who runs things on his timetable and not ours. See, it's not that we were talking for 30 minutes, so God was listening for 30 minutes, and now we said amen, we stopped talking, and now in minute 31, God now can immediately go to work on what we had just asked him in prayer. No, that's not what's being said here. Maybe we prayed for five minutes or 20 minutes, maybe 100 minutes. But there is always a delay between us praying and God acting. There's always a silence there. Now, in heaven, we can't do the math on the timetable of heaven. It, you know, 30 minutes in heaven, who knows what that represents here on earth. But however long that is, we pray, and then heaven is silent. God listens to everything we say, but he doesn't take orders from us. And so heaven is, from our perspective, often silent. But when the silence does end, and God, God does act in response to our prayers, what do we see happen? Back to verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, trumpet was my instrument growing up. I played trumpet. And I can tell you from experience, there's absolutely nothing subtle about the trumpet. <laughs> you pick up the trumpet, and you play your first note, and anyone with an earshot is disrupted. That sound interrupts whatever is happening. You know, later I learned how to play guitar. I wish I would just played guitar, not trumpet. Because I could sit in my room and strum my guitar, and no one would mind, but not my trumpet. You know, I pick up that trumpet and start practicing. There'd be a bang on the door. Do you have to do that now? Could you do that somewhere else? You know, strumming a guitar, the door would open. People would come in. Sometimes they'd sing along. Trumpet is not a sing-along instrument. <laughs> People never sit around the campfire and pull out a trumpet and say, hey, let's, let's sing. No, that, that is not what the trumpet does. 
The trumpet is the instrument of proclamation, not of sing-along. It proclaims the arrival, for example, in the military, of the morning in Reveille. It announces the arrival of the evening in Taps. It announces the arrival of kings and queens and presidents and dignitaries. And so in this painting of praying Christians in the face of Roman evil, it is the trumpet that proclaims what God is doing in answer to their prayers and now in answer to our prayers. Each trumpet blast precedes the arrival of a plague, seven plagues. Now, as you're reading through these plagues, by the time you get to plague number three or four, if, you've, if you're very familiar with much of the Old Testament, you immediately recognize, I've seen these plagues before. The reader who's familiar with the rest of the Bible recognizes these plagues from the plagues in Egypt. All of these plagues, these seven plagues, are a compilation of the ten plagues that God used to free his people from slavery in Egypt. And what had occurred back then is the people of God had been praying for how long? 430 years in slavery. I don't know if that's 30 minutes in heaven time, but it's not 30 minutes here on earth. It was 430 years of praying. And finally, God sent Moses to free his people from slavery in Egypt. And the main tool that God used to free them was the arrival of these 10 plagues. And the plagues against Egypt were not sent to punish the Egyptians. No, the purpose of the plagues was to show them that the gods that they worshipped were false gods. Every one of the plagues was a direct affront to one of the false gods they worshipped. So the Nile turned, turned into blood. Well, they worshipped the Nile. The Nile was a god to them. And it was God's way of saying, this is no real god. This is a false god. And it's the same thing that God does now. It's the same thing that these trumpets announce, these, these trumpet-announced plagues accomplish. But as with the Egyptians back then, even now, in the face of great loss, plague-like loss, and death, so many human hearts are just stubbornly committed to whatever their false gods are, and there is no repentance. This is part of this painting in Revelation 9, 20 through 21, after you read through the plagues, which is a retelling of the plagues against Egypt. We read this, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. This was true of the Egyptians. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. We tend to view prayer, I think, kind of the same way a patient in a hospital views that call button in their bed. You know that red call button? Now you, the reason you push that call button is because you're in pain. You push it to get the nurse to come and give you some relief from all of your pain and all of your discomfort. But prayer is, is, is a call button for sure, but it's not, not a call button for the nurse of heaven. It's a call button for the surgeon of heaven. When we pray, we are not asking God to come and make everything feel better. We are asking God to get involved and address evil. 
And that almost never occurs in a plague-free environment. I mean, if, if the false gods are working, why stop bowing and worshiping to them? Worshiping to them? You know, the, if the bank account is what I worship and it's still full, why would I switch gods to the one true God? So as we pray, know that one of the things that God does to address evil is he sends plagues that challenges whatever the false gods are in our hearts or the hearts of those we're praying for. You see, as in Egypt, the best chance anyone has to see their false gods for the lie that they really are is when those false gods fail them. Now, as we'll see in a few chapters, there will be a day when God will end this great battle against evil. And on that day, it will be too late to repent. It will be too late for God to address the evil in our human hearts and have us survive. But that day is not this day. So today, let's pray. Let's offer up our prayers to God so that they might be sent back to earth as thunder and lightning and earthquakes to work in the middle of the evil that we find ourselves in. Let's pray so that we might not lose hope in whatever prison island that evil has exiled us to. And let's pray so that the surgeon of heaven might address the evil in us and others before it's too late for the patient. So, let's pray. Father, we bow our collective heads and hearts before you. We thank you for these great paintings that show us the way things really are from your perspective. To us, it just seems like words like these are maybe wishes sent heavenward or maybe therapy for us. But you see it as something very different. We thank you that you take our words, you purify them, you add the power of the Holy Spirit with his groans and mutterings on our behalf, and then you send it back here to earth to begin to do its thunder, lightning, and earthquake-level work. We pray, Father, for this community that we live in, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family members, for our co-workers, those we go to school with. We ask that you would bring them to know you. You would show us our part in this as next week we talk about our role as a witness. Father, open up our eyes to see things the way you do so that we might live now rightly before you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.